Hello and welcome to the first Red Box political podcast in the Times of 2017. I'm Matt Chorley. As we begin a new year, there are big, complex problems facing the government, the country and the world. Today, though, we're going to keep it simple and ask, do our political leaders actually know what they are doing? This week, I'm joined by Emma Tucker, Deputy Editor of The Times, Ollie Wright, Policy Editor of The Times, and David Ivanovich, a Times columnist. So, welcome to you all. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Let's start with the obvious then. Does Theresa May know what she is doing? As she embarks on 2017, it's going to be a big year, triggering Article 50. We're going to start to see what sort of deal she may or may not get from Brussels. Plus, how she's running the government, the NHS crisis, strikes, all the other things she wants to do, industrial strategy, housing policy uh, and everything else. Let's start with you, Ollie. Do you think Theresa May knows what she's doing? She may know what she wants to do, but it's one thing knowing what you want to do, and it's quite another being able to do it. And that goes right across the board. If you look at the biggest question, Brexit, she might have an ideal vision in her head for the kind of relationship she wants the UK to have with the European Union after we leave. But she's got 27 other people to talk to before she can get anywhere near that. And they may have very different views on what kind of relationship they want. She faces, I mean, I think, unprecedented challenges, not just Brexit. Um, I think the stories about the NHS in the last few days show very real pressure on public spending, social care, education, across a whole range of issues. A couple of them on their own would press many prime ministers, but altogether, it is very hard to see how even a politician who's got the experience of hers can navigate a path through the next couple of years without coming unstuck. Of course, this moves on to the next one. She is she is helped in her task by the paucity of the opposition, which we have at the moment, who you know, really aren't doing the job of holding the government to account that we've seen in the past. But even still, the challenges she faces are huge. I think she's got a reasonable idea of where she would like to go, but I'm not sure she knows how she's going to get there. Emma, have you got faith that the Prime Minister is... is up to the job? Well, one person who definitely thinks she doesn't know what she's doing, as we discovered re- uh, recently, is Ivan Rogers, yeah. who uh, resigned and sent out this furious email, well, an email to his staff setting out their task. And I think one thing we've learned was that he felt he wasn't being listened to. This was a very experienced diplomat who was plugged into uh, the Brussels network, had all the best contacts was listening to what the other 27 member states but the what seems to be emerging is that this message these messages that he was relaying back to Downing Street were not being listened to but meanwhile a plan was being formulated there and whatever he said about how successful Theresa May's plan would or wouldn't be uh, was deemed irrelevant so even if there if there is a plan he didn't (coughs) know about it and uh, she wasn't listening to what he said so if you ask Ivan Rogers I think he would definitely say she doesn't know what she's doing. Is it possible you think that she has got a plan he just didn't think it was a very good one? I, I think it's entirely possible and actually interestingly if you talk to some people in industry or different sectors they will say well actually the government has been talking to us they do appear to be formulating a plan it's entirely conceivable that she does have a plan but that someone like Ivan Rogers thinks it's very limited or it won't play very well it will it will run into a brick wall the minute she sets it out because of what he's hearing back from the other 27 member states which let's not forget all have to agree on what kind of deal Britain gets and he unlike the prime minister does have the experience fairly recently of trying to get a special deal for Britain from 27 countries and finding out that the response that you get from all those countries, you know, as David Cameron found and his deal ended up uh, collapsing. David, what about you? Do you look at Theresa May and think that's a person who knows what she's doing? I look at Theresa May and think that she's possibly a, a tragic figure. Um, it reminds me of that 
line out of Hamlet. Now, the time is out of joint, oh cursed spite that ever I was born to put it right. Problem is, the time is out of joint. Uh, you don't choose always when you get to be Prime Minister. The moment comes along, bizarre, Andrea Leadsom and Boris Johnson <laughs> drop dead in front of you. Uh, and all of a sudden, there you are, breasting the tape, and it's yours. But you've got to put in place something that no one has ever done before. No one has ever left the European mm. Union before. So it was unknowable. Certainly not a country, uh, and obviously we're a very big country, with incredibly complex obligations. So what she was facing was a decision which was taken in a kind of, in an atmosphere of airy promises about how everything would fall into line, just you wait and see, and it'll all be fine, because just given, it's what we old Marxists used to call voluntarism. If you just believe a thing hard enough, then it will come <laughs> true, uh, and so on. So there was this kind of atmosphere, where if you just give it your best go, and you do it enough, and you push it enough, then the thing will come right for you in the end. Trouble is, it's infantile. That's not actually how life works. It's how you want life to work. So whether she has a, knows what she's doing or not, the thing that she's trying to do is almost impossible to do well. It can only really be done in shades of badly. Um, <laughs> uh, that, and that's the problem. And the, and the question is the point at which she recognises the badly that she can get away with. And so on. I don't think she's there yet. Well, that she attempts to explain that it is, it is going to be about shades of badly. I mean, she's done nothing to prepare the ground. So I think expectations are very high and and a lack of understanding as to what our position how strong a position we're in and again you know does she know what she's doing she seems to be everything she says suggests that we are heading for what's now being called a hard brexit because if you line up what she says she wants the only way we could conceivably get it would be for us to leave the single market and the customs union now that may be a negotiating position but you know in terms of what she's saying it seems pretty clear that she does think she knows where we're heading and what she wants one of the things that i've been struck by particularly speaking to people from number 10 over christmas is the sense that for the last six months they feel like they've been in a sort of cocoon. Part of the reason why there's been no running commentary on Brexit, but also been no running commentary on anything. I mean, all the news in 2016 happened in the first six months and nothing really emerged from mm. uh, them afterwards. And part of that is a result of the way that she became Prime Minister. Unlike a leader of the opposition who has years mm. to prepare both policy but also how you're going to operate, or even someone who'd had the summer sort of Tory leadership contest that we expected. She'd have had two or three months to get her ducks in a row. She had 48 hours, was dumped in number 10. Immediately the machine of running the country sort of built up around. And they've been trying to, one cabinet minister told me that they were not quite making it up as they go along, but trying to work out how she wants to operate as Prime Minister, while also tackling the most absurdly complicated issue that has ever faced a Prime Minister. The Labour government that came into power in 1997 had had three straight years of, t of Tony Blair as leader and Gordon Brown as shadow chancellor to prepare for its policies and it had done. Even so after he came to power what Blair said was a few years that we wasted our first couple of years uh, because we weren't actually we actually didn't have a clear enough idea about what we could and should do and we had a very naive idea about what power was well Theresa May can't possibly have a naive idea about what power was she's been exercising it uh, uh, for long enough she was exercising it in the context of a Cameron government that was incredibly anti-ideological I mean it was anti-ideological down to the level of you really did get the, get the feeling that they would latch on to whatever was convenient at any particular moment. And, and, and I think the old adage was, as long as we're in power, things are going to be all right, and so on. And I think that she's she, she's a victim, in a sense, of the fact that that has been the governing ideology 
for quite some time now. With an added veneer of it's going to be even more rights because it's me and not David Cameron. There is this sort of Team May mentality that anything they're doing must be slightly better. Well, can I just say about that, that, that? If that is their mentality, then they're idiots. <laughs> they really are. It's an idiotic state of mind to get into. It doesn't make any sense. It's, uh, you know, uh, uh, and that will never end well. And what, you know, one of the points that isn't made enough is that you know, Brexit is going to take up so much of the government's time that other things are going to fall by the wayside. And are. Yeah. Mm. Um, how many civil servants speech. do we currently have yeah. working on Brexit? Oh, it's right across. I mean, we've got Dexy, which has got 350, but then you've got civil servants in every part of government going through the laws, working out what's applicable to the European Union, what needs to be changed, what needs to be and repealed. these are all people who could have been doing something else. Mm. Yeah. And they're all people uh, who, otherwise. you know, drafting legislation. All the people who normally draft legislation are going to be taken up with reviewing existing legislation. One of the interesting things is she doesn't have a mandate. She wasn't elected. She was elected, as David said, in this slightly sort of peculiar way where various people fell by the wayside and she emerged. But she seems to be taking the result of the referendum. She's reading into the 52% an awful lot of things and seems to be using that as a mandate for all sorts of other things, whether it's reintroducing grammar schools or the, or the jams or the various things she's talking about. She seems to have taken what she thinks was the message of the referendum, which perhaps it was, but not necessarily, and using that as the basis for her mandate mm. to do things that aren't related to Brexit. It's, it's very hard to see how the referendum result was a radical call for an interventionist industrial strategy, <laughs> and yet that seems to be yes. the, the way that she's sort of trying to reverse interpret mm. everything. Um, just very quick, because we should touch on it a bit more, the NHS crisis. The government position seems to be it's not all about money. You know, there are other reasons. Everyone else seems to say, well, it is about money because if it's about beds and doctors and nurses and they cost money, then if you had more money, you could have more beds and doctors. And how big a thing is, you know, this, it does feel like an annual thing. We come back from... No, hold on. It's, it's, it's not an annual thing. It stopped being an annual thing back in 2001, 2002. If you remember, for those of us who have got really kind of long memories, remember Blair being bearded by that woman outside Birmingham Hospital in 2001? And he went off and effectively then gave an interview on whatever the forerun of the market program was etc where he said we're going to go up to eu levels of expenditure on the nhs one of the consequences of that including the consequences of having the target targets they were controversial as well was that we actually did improve performance as a result of spending more money now it is true to say money is not everything if you're grossly inefficient but it's also true to say you will never have a situation where every single hospital is as efficient as the most efficient is that's not how humanity works and so on. So of course it is true that as we have dropped levels of increased funding for the NHS, so difficulties have opened up for hospitals and for GPs and for people across the board. There is an argument that says that if you put a lot of extra money into social care, then in that case that will take the pressure off uh, the NHS. And that is all true. But you have to do it first. And, th- and that, that's still money. It's just, just, you're, yeah. just, you know, you need to find some more money, then it's a question of where, where you put it. Do you, do you think that she's going to have to dig deep and find some or or did you think she's inclined to just try and ride it out i don't think there's the money to find to make a significant <laughs> difference there'll be you know the, the figures will look good they'll dress it up but the truth is we spend far less than other european countries and the states per capita mm. gdp on health and there is a direct correlation between the amount per capita per head you spend on gdp and the kind of health service you've got it is not just about efficiencies it's about the fact that new drugs new treatments are coming along the whole time the rising cost of nhs treatment is much more to do with what we can do these days than it is to and do how with how old we get and how old we're getting. I agree that, you know, if you if you improve social care, you will reduce 
some of the pressures on the NHS, but it's also true that you may just push back some of those pressures a couple of years because you keep them out for the time being, but they still go in in the end. I mean, just take one of the things that people are focusing on. The I've got a slight problem with targets. Four-hour target in A&E, which everyone misunderstands. They think that it's a four hours to be seen. Mm. It's not four hours to be seen. It's four hours to be seen, to be treated, or to be admitted. So you get into this ridiculous situation where someone is being assessed. They're trying to work out whether they should go into hospital, which in the case of someone who's frail and elderly, hospital quite possibly isn't the right place for them. But there's this mandatory target which says that the doctors, the nurses, have to make this decision within four hours. If there's a test that might take five minutes longer, they can't do it. They have that, to make that's, that that's, decision. That's, that's true, Ollie, but speaking mm-hmm. of somebody who spent a complete day in A&E with an elderly relative just the week before Christmas, and a lot mm-hmm. of what you say is, is obviously true, uh, and in the end, between us and my wife, we spent... 12 hours in A&E. And the main reason was the problem... I mean, some of it was a problem of assessment, but two hours of it was spent in a corridor trying with the ambulance staff trying to see anybody in the first place. Mm. Now, that two hours isn't necessary. That's that's not an essential point. But you're making a slightly different point. I'm just saying that the four-hour target, as it's constructed, can actually have adverse consequences. It doesn't mean that... I just think there needs to be a smarter target rather than the one we've got, and we shouldn't be hung up on this four-hour target. No hours in a corridor target. Right, let's move on then, because obviously a big question in this, and we touched on it before, is the government would be under more pressure on this sort of things if it had a more effective opposition. This week we've had Jeremy 2.0, the rebooted Jeremy Corbyn. Big speech he's doing on Brexit, where he's going to say that Britain's going to be better off after Brexit. The briefed extract said that he was no longer wedded to the principle of freedom of movement, and they did an extraordinary series of TV interviews where he sounded rather more wedded to freedom of movement than we thought. He then floated the idea of a maximum cap on earnings. He also is apparently modelling himself on Donald Trump. This is the whole new thing. It's going to be all about taking the fight to opponents in the media by tweeting and holding big rallies and all that. So the, the question number two is, does Jeremy Corbyn know what he's doing? Let's start with you, Emma. I was thinking about this this morning and thinking, I wonder how much time Jeremy Corbyn spends thinking about his chances of winning the next election. And I would guess that it's hardly any time at all because looking at the way he behaves and looking at what he's doing I don't think that's what he really cares about what he cares about is taking on his old enemies you know fighting the good fight sticking to his principles talking a language that he's familiar with pretty much the last thing on his mind is you know attacking the Tories up to a point but not to the point where he might actually win an election and so yeah he does know what he's doing and it's fine by him. But, but possibly not anyone else. I was struck, Piers Morgan asked him in one of the many interviews he did, do you want to be Prime Minister? And his response was, I want to be in government. Rather than yes, <laughs> which is what the answer to any other uh, leader of the opposition yeah. would give. I'm going to put the opposite case, though. I'm going to say that actually there is something. What we heard in all those interviews is Jeremy Corbyn speaking his mind. And normally what they do is he does these interviews, they all go off half-cocked and they lead to terrible headlines like capping wages and then they go into hiding because they've you know they think it's better to be hiding and not having these battles they're saying team corbyn i've spoken to they like this they like this fight they're going to embrace the anger and the backlash and all of that um, because they think actually people the sort of people who voted for brexit who feel a bit left behind and whether it's the just about managings or the the left behind they don't mind if people over a million pounds have their have their wages cut. Is there any argument at all that says that a radical, unashamedly bonkers, plain speaking Jeremy Corbyn could connect with some of those people, David? I don't really know how to even begin to engage <laughs> with this. I mean, no, I should do. I, I, I do. I mean, I heard it. I've, I've heard it 
long enough. If uh, Tony Benn used to be the big uh, uh, speaker of this kind, if people only understood understood properly what we were trying to do and didn't have the kind of biased press, etc., they'd understand that the kind of things that they wanted all along, like cutting our defence budgets and not having any soldiers and stuff like that. And so with Jeremy Corbyn, you had him saying, yes, he'd unashamedly stand on the Southern Railway, on Southern Rail picket line. I cannot think of a single person who wouldn't already be voting Labour who would vote Labour as a consequence of that stance. Can you? Can you think? Can you think what voter <laughs> is conceivably attracted to it who wouldn't already be a member of the RMT or so? I can't. He didn't float the idea of a wealth tax. It was floated for him, and he just responded to it. Although it turns out this was actually his policy going into the, the first Labour leadership contest. I'm not sure. There are all kinds of things that he said over yeah. the course of the last forty years, um, <laughs> which you could kind of pick up, and he'll say, "Yeah, kind of in general, he goes along to." Does he think Fidel Castro was a good person, etc.? Does he think that the legacy of Hugo Chavez is a fabulous Venezuela? etc or would have been if it hadn't been for the Americans all this kind of stuff the problem with I mean there are two interlinked problems with for, for Cor- for, with Corbyn the first is that his politics are unpopular and the idea incidentally that that proportion of the Brexit vote that is a Labour working class vote which is after all not a majority of the Brexit vote is the key around which everything in British politics turns if you win it is wrong it's it's a fixation we've got into since the Brexit vote but it's not actually right I mean we found out at uh, at the Richmond by-election for instance that this is only one demographic there are other other demographics are available so firstly it's an incredibly narrow appeal to a group of people who are appealed to much better by other people because if you really want to be anti-immigration and you really want to be a bit kind of rebarbative etc there are other people out there going to do it better than you are as a kind of islingtonian left labor leader frankly <laughs> no matter how you try and dress it up so this won't work but then there's the other factor and i'll say this very very briefly corbyn is incompetent He's never run anything. He's never been able to run anything. He never will be able to run anything. And so on. he has no capacities like that, no kind of attitudes for it. He's not in any kind of way managerial or leadership material. But the point is, he doesn't care. He doesn't care. It's exactly what we were saying what we were saying earlier. He believes that the cause of the left, as he sees it, has been advanced by his leadership election and that he will be part of a historic process which will end three millennia from now <laughs> with Jeremy Corbyn, Mark 48. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Etc. who will actually then be the leader of a revolution in Britain. It would be remiss of me not to plug the two Richmond by-election specials uh, that we did uh, on the podcast uh, before Christmas. Ollie, after uh, Jeremy Corbyn's uh, appearances in the media, I um, had a text from a Labour MP saying, he's not even a man of principle now, just a badly dressed mannequin being manoeuvred into place by incompetent window dressers. They do like him, don't they? <laughs> and I, was just gonna, I was just on the narrow point of capping wages. I may be controversial. I do think that's popular. 
And I do think that will be popular. And I think that will be popular with a lot of people who voted Conservative. I think the politics around this has changed. I'm not saying it's practical, I'm not saying it's a good idea, but I do think it will be popular. Yeah, 20 years on from 1997 and Tony Blair. If you can can sort of imagine if a a politician with sort of Tony Blair's presentational skills that he had back then put that forward as a policy in this political context at the time, people would support it. It's not going to win him an election. It's crazy, but I do think it's uh, I do think he's onto something there in terms of political support. Well, people are getting very excited and saying, "Oh, forty-four percent of people were against it in polls when this first came up in 2015, and thirty-nine percent of people in favour of it." I might be wrong. I suspect forward against Brexit was probably about the same. You know, quite a lot has happened in that time. Things might have changed. Is there any way back for the Labour Party? Or is it just one long, drawn-out tweet-a-thon between uh, now no, and 2020? At the moment, there's no way back for anybody anywhere. That's the problem. That's the problem we're in. There's no way back. As he said, Jeremy Corbyn said on the radio, uh, I was elected by a bigger majority than uh, by the first time I stood, by a larger membership, therefore you can't get rid of me. And they can't, no matter what Len McCluskey says, so they can't get rid of him. Likewise, there appears to be no way back on Brexit because no political party is willing, that's powerful, is willing to stand up and say, let's change our minds on this and so on. And for, as for our third level of discussion, if we do, do go on to discuss Donald Trump, there's no way back from that either. It does rather feel as if everything's on hold, weirdly. There are these huge political issues out there. But at the same time, it's as if we're all waiting for stuff to happen. And I guess we are. We're waiting for Article 50 to be triggered so we finally get a sense of where we're heading we're waiting for donald trump to be inaugurated uh you know it just it's it's all and nothing at the same time it feels a bit bit like particularly because the way that number 10 is operating and the apparent uselessness of the opposition we haven't had the day-to-day politics to distract us which normally goes on but we have had this enormous explosion or the you know the total resetting of politics that that the brexit vote has brought but then total silence uh, afterwards. But uh, as you brought it up, David, let's move on to uh, the final question of the day. Does Donald Trump know what he's doing? His inauguration's coming on Friday the 20th. There was a moment after he was first elected where it looked like he might calm down a bit. He seemed a bit overwhelmed by the prospect of it all. His Twitter feed suggests calming down isn't isn't part of the plan. (laughs) We've all had these discussions endlessly, which is, uh, or rather people said to, said to us, look, you know, don't overreact. Uh, in the end, the thing, the elastic band will snap back. It's a whole system that you've got there of presidents and presidential advisors and Congress and checks and balances and constraints. And so what will happen is that this utterly extraordinary and out uh, of kilter person will actually end up being enforcedly being a regular kind of president. Just swamped by the system. Yeah. Yeah. This is this is this there's almost a kind of orthodoxy uh, uh, around this, and you have to say that maybe that can be true, but it also may not be true, uh, and so on. Uh, the answer to the question: Does Donald Trump know what he's doing? Is no, and it doesn't matter to him. Uh, really, what matters to him is that he's doing it. What matters to him, what you've got is the the supreme example of the great narcissist in the world who has won through narcissism. He's not won through denying his narcissism. He's won through promoting his narcissism. (laughs) He has absolutely no reason to mitigate it now until he comes up against the possibility of an electoral disaster. But that's four years down the road from now, and he'll be fairly confident. He's going to wing it. 
He's going to wing it every time between now and the next presidential election, thinking that the same extraordinary combinations of weird skills, weird modern skills, will get him through. I agree with David on that. I mean, I think there was a sense, a sort of wishful thinking when he was elected from people who were slightly dis- well, disturbed by the result that the office would tame him, that somehow he would rise to the occasion that, 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 that what was a campaign was a campaign, but being president was different. Then I read a piece by a, a very good American writer who said he'd gone into a meeting with Donald Trump after this election result, expecting to see the man say, you know what, that was all just the campaign. But he said, no, what we saw was exactly what we always saw, the same vain thin-skinned, intemperate, narcissistic person that he was on the campaign trail. And actually, the office isn't going to tame him. What you see is what you get. There was just that brief moment when he went in and saw Obama for the first time. (laughs) And Obama said, yeah, I talked him through a typical day in the office and that was the point that Donald Trump looked like looked a bit like Michael Gove and Boris Johnson the morning after the yeah. referendum that sort of oh my lord what what have I done but that seems to have gone all out the window now yeah. and in 10 days before he enters the White House he's declared war on Meryl Streep that seems yes. to be the, the top well, that, priority that's the world he really cares about by the way him versus Meryl Streep not him versus Vladimir Putin or something like that. Him versus Meryl Streep. Because that's something we can all get involved in without there being anything very mm. much to play in it. Somebody, I, can't, I don't know who it was, but so I saw somebody put on Twitter, it, we were just lucky that it wasn't Kim Jong-un who won the <laughs> Best Actress uh, <laughs> Award at the Golden Globes because it could have been much more dangerous as well. Ollie, Donald Trump, does he know what he's doing? What worries me is that the fundamental promise was about Trump was the economy and improving the economy, getting people's jobs back. That is far harder to do than it is to say. And what do you do if you can't do it? Who do you look to blame? And I fear that you look to blame abroad. That's what's happening in Russia. That's what's happening in China. You look for the the foreign foe. And if America starts doing that as well, then you're in real trouble. Good. Well, that's good. So we've got a a maybe, a no, and no, and he doesn't care. So that's good. We're all in safe hands uh, for that. Uh, Let us know what you think. Does Theresa May, Jeremy Corbyn, Donald Trump, do they know what they're doing? Email us redbox at thetimes.co.uk. Tweet at timesredbox or find us on Facebook. And if you want to wake up to my uh, morning guide to what's happening in British politics, then sign up to my free redbox political briefing at thetimes.co.uk. UK forward slash red box email don't forget also to subscribe to the podcast via itunes and leave a review there uh, if you're going to be polite but for now from emma ollie david and me it's goodbye thank you for downloading to discover more head to thetimes.co.uk